before you showed me that picture, I would not have been able to tell you what color Mitt Romney's eyes were. I would have guessed blue, probably. I mean, that seems like the color his manufacturers would have put in there. (laughs) He's extraordinarily white. Oh, here he is in a turtleneck. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Dan Brown Code. I'm Lena. I'm Forrest. And today we are going over 41 through 60, correct? Yes, indeed. All right. I should probably find chapter 41. I also probably should do that and also pull my notes up. Um, I haven't slept much in the last week, so that's just where I'm, I'm okay. at right now. I had a friend in town and mm. then... That'll do it. I just have not been sleeping because of the World Cup and... All Man, that. I like the World Cup a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. We'll talk about it. Tunisia plays tomorrow, though. That's exciting. Yes. Yes, it is. We're probably going to die, but... Eh. At least we made it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, chapter a... 41. Yeah. Outside Castle Gandolfo. Are you just going to read the chapter to us? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> this, this podcast is now an illegal audio book. <laughs> um, I just want to open with, it says, uh, it says he's in the library room or something mm-hmm. of this castle, and it says, on all sides towering bookcases burgeoned with volumes and i, I yes, hate it it's not good virgin <laughs> is not the right word <laughs> well burgeoned with volume to say we're full of books put down the thesaurus <laughs> back away yeah also did you know that bishop arin garosa is apparently going commando beneath his cassock oh says he in his head i should have worn more than this cassock so that says to me a literal reader <laughs> That this man's wearing only a cassock. I thought maybe he meant like I should wear a jacket, but Oh, I think it's... he meant I think he meant a jacket and also underwear. What do you know about Opus Day and underwear? Do they wear it? Probably. Is it sinful to wear underwear? I think I think you're in the clear underwear. <laughs> okay. So we're in the castle. He's got a super secret He's got some meeting. kind of meeting with some some shadowy council that I think we're gonna find out is high-ranking italian cardinals right and he's there and he's like okay so like i've made some money moves since we last talked i know i only had six months but i've done it because yeah he was like there was he got oh I, I, was, I was distracted by money moves because it occurred to me doesn't the pope famously wear louboutins these red bottoms these are <laughs> bloody shoes you would know <laughs> or as in one of the best tweets of all time to cross my timeline, a picture of an Incan mummy with red soled shoes on. And it says, these is red bottoms. Uh, these is mummy shoes. <laughs> Pretty good. These are Sangreal shoes. If it's the Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's like, yeah, I've done some things, you know, I, I handled it. You said it was six months, but like, you know, I got done in five. That's right. And run me my coin now. You know, you, mm-hmm. you owe me. So he's getting money in uh, some kind of bonds. Yeah. Vatican bonds. Vatican so bonds. that way it can be traced back to the Vatican. So they can't disavow whatever it is he's doing with this money. Should they decide it's not great? And they're like, can we give it to you in like non-sequential bills or something? And they're it's like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> you will uh, live with this forever. Yeah. And then uh, they won't tell us what's happening. They won't tell us what the six month thing is about i know there's like one month until the previous six month deadline and we don't know anything and we still don't know what the holy grail is and we don't know anything it's so annoying i hate this i hate when he does this it makes me so mad it's not fun it isn't no it's this chapter is a bummer anything oftentimes the chapters where it's not robert langdon are the worst chapters Mm. because he's just like trying to 
drip out information as slowly as possible so he can give you as many possible chapters that he can break off whenever there's a Robert Langdon cliffhanger. Yeah. He can keep you with bated breath by giving you like a chapter of Bishop Ringarosa or like Silas around. or whatever doing yeah. some nonsense. I mean, we know everything about Silas, right? Like he's trying to find the keystone to the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. And like, we know when, his when, whole backstory. Yeah. And we, when we had Sandrine, it was like, she's obviously like involved in the protection of this thing. But a Ringarosa is an enigma. Who is the teacher? Who is this guy? I mean, Janice, the teacher. <laughs> Um, okay, 42. They're at the Bank of Zurich, the Swiss bank. Yes. And Hunting they for take, Nazi gold. And they sure take some time getting into this bank because it has several layers of security that you use the same key for. Yeah. It says, it talks about like total anonymity, so mm-hmm. there, no names are attached to any accounts. It's only account numbers. Um, but there's like cameras everywhere. I was confused by that. So neither of us know? Okay, that's fine. No, it didn't make sense. Like, I mean, I get why you want to have cameras to secure your bank, but also if you're that focused on anonymity, then maybe your clients don't... Or maybe they can wear masks when they come in. That's I what I know. thought. You could wear one of those like Hillary Clinton masks and mm-hmm. just do it. Uh, I want to read to you a sentence. Go for Sophie it. Sophie aligned the key's triangular shaft with the hole and inserted, and inserted it, sliding it in until the entire shaft had disappeared. I could have sworn I highlighted that. It's on 177. Huh, I didn't highlight it, but I could have sworn I did because I noticed that. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. It was very gross. Um, and then he was, now they're trapped between a gate and another gate, and he has a constricted sensation. And I just don't, I don't like his word. I hate Dan Brown's words. He has the worst words. He's not good at writing sentences that make any sense. <laughs> Or creating images that are pleasing or interesting. It, so, yeah, they're entering the bank. Um, and they're presented with one more keyhole. And unlike the first two, this one doesn't tell them to insert the key. And Robert Langdon laughs and says that it's to keep out the slow learners. He, he's really smart, Robert Langdon. Is. He's a funny guy. He's real funny and smart. Um, a guy behind the counter, I guess, once they get there. He's like enormous. He's like a yeah. He's got a but he's, he's got a cool a tailored suit and a gun. Yeah, and it says that he, uh, he his diction chimed with the polished courtesy of a Swiss bellhop. You know Swiss Famously, bellhops. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so so he tells them like which way to go to like access the thing. He like looks at their key and is like, oh, I'll have someone assist you immediately because um, you know they're gold members. Yeah. So um, they go to where they're going. Meanwhile, the guard like sees them on TV and then calls Interpol. Well, yeah. calls the boss and then calls Interpol. Um, I'm, I've had it with Interpol. I'm out. I'm tired of it. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. It's, for me, it's a band <laughs> and not like a real entity. So okay, so they go downstairs into some a very luxurious like reception room mm-hmm. with like a Perrier water and, and coffee and coffee. And it's just like a beautiful, luxurious room. And Langdon says, and, or a, thinks, and, a, and a lovely conveyor belt. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Langdon thinks clockwork. Leave it to the Swiss. And there's not a clock or any gears. Well, I think he just meant the fact that like they arrived at an obscure hour and and everything was and, set. And like the the host coming out to meet them is impeccably dressed, even though he was probably asleep five minutes before because he uh, imitates the Maasai warrior people. <laughs> yes, it's just that the clock. No, that's not him. That's not the host who's coming to see them. That's just it's a separate guy. And then the other guy comes. The Maasai guy is later. Okay. Because he's woken up (laughs) by uh, this doorman. And he's like, oh, we got some, like, murderers. And he's like, oh, (laughs) shit. (laughs) Um, 
it's just like a stretch to go like clock and then Swiss clock making. Like, yeah, there's no clock. Anyways, to access what they need in the safe deposit box, they're going to need, in addition to their key, they're also need a 10 digit account number. Mm-hmm. And Sophie's like, Oh, what if we don't have the account number? And the banker in his head, then obviously you have no business here. And then he says, he'll ask someone to help you. You know, we'll be in there shortly. Mm-hmm. Oh, they got a So Interpol got a tip. And so Fash, Fash uh, is now knows, back on the trail. Yeah. He knows where they are. 24 um, Rue Axo. Sophie should, Sophie should be smarter than this. I, I don't, I spent a long time just with myself really. And like looking at the book, I hadn't <laughs> read it, but then I was just looking at it and I was just thinking about smart women in literature, like women who are smart on paper. And I mean, it's a book. So everything is on paper, but what I mean is like, it's a tell don't show of smart women. Like Sophie was obviously very intelligent and very bright. And yet she thinks about this 10 digit number and she goes, Oh, we don't have one. (laughs) Despite the clue having brought her to this path of illumination being a series of numbers. And she doesn't even think for like the moment I read that I thought, Oh, Hey, didn't we just read a bunch of numbers? Was that 10? And it makes me so sick <laughs> that Dan Brown would like for the women to be smart in a sexy way. Like, oh, she's like intelligent and challenging, but like not smarter than him or LinkedIn. No, she's like um, a non-manic pixie dream girl. Like she, I don't she's think like she has, a lobotomized she doesn't pixie ha- dream yeah, she girl. Doesn't have, she doesn't have the manic energy of that whimsical type, but mm-hmm. like. She does have the same kind of challenging, but not in any kind of actually challenging way. And like the appearance of intelligence, but not actual intelligence, which Robert Langdon also has. (laughs) Um, I think it's, I think, I think it's as much a problem of just Dan Brown writing human beings. Mm. It's about equal parts that and Dan Brown not being it even less able to write female humans. Right. Exactly. I I, I think, yeah. Is Robert Langdon a genius? No, but the the vision of what Sophie figures out and what Robert figures out is ridiculous. Yeah. She's a cryptologist and she's sitting here like what 10 digit number. It seems like he has a pretty good idea of the things Robert would know. Yeah. And then Sophie's just there to figure out whatever else needs to get figured out that he can't like, think of a way to put into Robert Langdon's or to like hold people at gunpoint or whatever. Mm -hmm. It just reminds me of like, we're we're still on this with the book down. (laughs) (laughs) It just reminds me of my experiences with dating. Um, because you know, like when you, when you date like smart boys as a woman, like they want a girl who's smart, but like only a little bit smart, like smart so that they can show people that she's smart and not smarter than him. Or like, there's a point at which when you're dating someone, dating a man who is intelligent, uh, commonly where it becomes apparent to the man that it is not an act <laughs> that you're not putting it uh-huh. on that it's you know, you're not putting it on to attract him it's actually you you are a challenging and uh, like interesting and ambitious person and it's not just you know like a cute like quirk your intelligence yeah and um th- it reminds me a lot of this of, of Every, what's happening everything here. i know about dating is from books largely written for teenagers mm. and uh the common trope there is 
at least in the in the kinds I've been reading lately, which are like ones that someone on Twitter says like, this is a fun teen fantasy book or whatever. Uh-huh. And so they're always like a female protagonist and she's like real smart and the best at everything. But then like the boy she likes, she's afraid that if she seems too smart, that'll be bad. So like she tries to be dumb, but it's, it's also a plot in every sitcom, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, tries to be dumb and like let him win at things. And then like, half the time that works and they get discussed with themselves and the other half the time the boy's actually good himself and just wants her to excel at her thing mm-hmm. and neither one seems actually fully accurate to um the way people work right i mean i'm luckily in a relationship now with someone who's very secure in his intelligence and like isn't put off by the fact that i'm like a living breathing human with ambitions and and i'm you know sounds in, scary in some way <laughs> um it can be threatening <laughs> And it just reminds me of how Sophie is written of like, yeah. she's smart on the surface, but like she really needs Robert's help, you know, mm-hmm. Robert's still needed. Anyway, let's move on to 43. Thanks everyone so, for listening. So, Thanks so, for coming so, to my yeah. TED talk. So now we meet the Maasai warrior of the business world, Andre Vernet. Yeah. I didn't look up whether the Maasai do that. Do you know? I have no idea. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I've kind of stopped looking things up for the most part. I, yeah, I did some Googling this week, but like mostly to verify things I thought I knew to make sure I wasn't going to say something very dumb later mm. on. There's that word cognoscenti again. I, I like that word. I like it too. I just don't understand why it wasn't italic, excuse me, italicized the first time and then it's italicized this time. Because Dan Brown has never like considered a style book at any point he's never con- <laughs> he, like he's, ne- he's never considered consistency in his writing that's true i think he tried once and it hurt him <laughs> um go ahead uh i just like Vernet. he's like a fancy bitch um yeah he's very he's, fraser and like despite his plush accommodations in a lavish flat above the bank he really just wants a apartment where he can be with my computer made a noise uh, <laughs> where he can <laughs> where he can be with the cognoscente on legal san louis and uh, he wants to fill his cellar with rare Bordeaux, adorn his salon with a Fragonard and perhaps a Boucher, and spend his days hunting for antique furniture and rare books in the Cartier Latin. <laughs> I want to be friends with this dude. He seems fun. He seems like maybe a little bit exhausting. He but seems like, like maybe fun. too much of a Virgo, but like we could we could get along. <laughs> oh, he talks about the watch. He's really annoyed with the watchman for um, calling Interpol. In the way of a Swiss bank where, like, you know, you can keep your grandma's nice jewelry, but also you can keep the paintings you stole when you were an SS officer. <laughs> uh, so he's not super psyched with the fact that his 15 euro an hour uh, watchman called Interpol before just phoning him. Yeah, he's like, but what do you expect with a 15 euro an hour? And I'm like, well, it's a Swiss bank. Um, And a 15 euro an hour watchman, like, wears a nice suit to work. He greets the clients nicely in his best Swiss bellhop voice with double languages. He's got a gun, like... Shouldn't they... Well, if Pay your your watchman better. Pay them better, and also, shouldn't they be trained in discretion? You'd think so. Let's see. So he goes down. And he recognizes Sophie. Yes. Um, but he pretends he doesn't right and because she, their services are anonymous <laughs> right um but he now learns that jacques Sonnier is dead mm-hmm. and that's very heartbreaking to him and he's like did you have anything to do with it and she's like uh no we no. didn't we didn't do any murders thanks and so there's a 10 digit thing um and he, so verne is shocked that they weren't given a 10 digit code and she's like no, no, no code. No, literally no numbers were given to us. And there's 10 digits and she goes like 10 billion possible choices. So many. How are we going to, how are we going to do it? 
Um, and the police are on their way. So they've got to figure this thing out before the police get there and, like, sneak out. Um, somehow. Somehow. Right. So they just talk back and forth. And he's like, Jacques is a friend, so I'll help. Yeah. You know? And he does let them know the police are on their way. Right. Um, and so Langdon stood suddenly and Sophie sensed an unexpected glimmer of contentment in his eyes. And I would pay a lot of money to avoid seeing any glimmer of contentment <laughs> in Robert Langdon's eyes. Um, and he realizes that the Fibonacci sequence is the account number. Duh. Duh. We all know that. Yeah. Of course. Oh, um, well... At first, we think the 10-digit account number is the scrambled version of the Fibonacci sequence that Sonia wrote down. Mm, but it is not. No, it turns out uh, Sophie types that in and before pressing enter, because they only got one chance before the system shuts down forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's like, no, you can't remember this scrambled up thing. My uncle would want it. A grandfather would want it like, in order so he could remember it. So yeah. he would know this account number. Well, she first she grabs the computer printout. As opposed to a non-computer printout. <laughs> so she can see the numbers. Um, so it is that. Langdon realized she had a, f- a point. Uh, earlier, Sophie had rearranged this account number into the Fib- Fibonacci sequence. What were the odds of being able to do that? Pretty. I mean, the cryptology department did it themselves yeah. like an hour later. <laughs> um, so they enter in the number. Nothing happens except we're treated to a very, very long description of the mechanism by which things are brought from the vault into the fancy room which by the way Vernet gives us earlier in this chapter mm-hmm. or in the last chapter the the conveyor belt brings a big old crate into the room mm. and in the crate there's one shoe bo- shoebox sized wooden box with like a carving of a rose on it which Robert Langdon knows is the priory symbol for the Holy Grail. The five petal rose, which the five petal rose doesn't look like a rose. What's uh, the, what's the what's the prior scion five petal rose? It looked a lot like a, just a like you know when a child draws a flower, mm-hmm. just like this. Huh. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Langdon's like, man, this box is the perfect size to fit a cup. But then he knows that's not possible because he knows the Holy Grail isn't a cup. But it does sound like there's liquid inside. That's right. There's liquid. Anyway. Weird. Anyway, it's not the cup of Christ because whatever is in the uh, the box... Isn't a cup. Isn't a cup. Maybe it's like one of those uh, to-go tumblers from Starbucks. That'd be cool. Yeah. And Vernet comes back in the room and tells them the police are blocking the street. It's going to be tough to get you out. But I have a plan. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so, he's, he's shocked to find out they've actually gotten the box. What's in the box? She's like, yeah, it turned out we had a, an account number after all. I was, I just needed a man to explain it to me. Yeah, and that's going to complicate things for, for, for Vernet a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so what we've decided to do here to escape just, you know, kind of scooting ahead. Because yep. it's kind of a boring chapter It's here. not exciting. Um is he decides to throw them in the back of an armored truck and put on a driver's suit and uh, pretend like he's just driving, you know, a shipment of whatever to wherever. There's a cool thing here. On their way out, they're stopped by one of the policemen who's right at the bank. It's Cole, actually. The driver. Oh. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no, this has been... Uh, and he explains the process by which yeah. they drive things, which is like... They load up the thing, they lock it, someone drives to the destination with just the key, and then at that point... Then the, the cargo driver. moves. Mm-hmm. And um, and the guy's like, oh, okay. Like, I believe you. But then he spots his Rolex. Do and Vernet is like, 
Right. And Renee's like, I bought it for like 20 bucks down on wherever. I'll sell it to you for 40. And he's like, no, thanks. That was pretty smooth. I like that part. Yeah. If the guy did, if Cole did buy it, he'd be out, you know, a lot of money. But. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing I like about it is that it lets us, it is, it is an instance of showing, not telling that Cole is a pretty good detective. That's right. And I like that. I like that too. And it also shows and doesn't tell us that this, uh, Vernay guy is it's quick is also quick and smart and cool so i liked all that yeah all good all i said I'll, my only note for the chapter was i like all this and uh, now we're back with silas and he's just like whipping the shit out of his back he's so i mean he's feel he, he thinks he's failed totally at his mission that's right i mean he has yeah he killed four people for no reason and yeah he didn't get the keystone and but then he gets a phone call from the teacher who's like silas all is not lost. Uh, the secret lives, and then he'll be, he's, he's going to call back with more information later. He tells us a little bit about like when Bishop Ringarosa was like, go murder these people and get the thing, um, which like really gave him purpose, and I was happy for him, but then he did all the murders, and you know, less happy. Um, 47, they're chilling in this cargo hold of an armored truck. Langdon uh, is having a hard time because of claustrophobia reasons. So in the in the back of the truck, they can now fully explore the object inside of the box. Mm-hmm. And Langdon pulls it out. It's a white marble cylinder about the size of a tennis ball can. That's right. So picture that. And then really this. So this the cylinder is composed of like five smaller rotating cylinders with the alphabet on them that are described as donut-sized discs. A tennis ball can is not a donut around. It is maybe a donut around, but like a donut is a larger proposition than a tennis ball can. So if the discs are ten- are donut sized, then the can can't be tennis ball can sized, right? Donut. Yeah, that's two uses of size. And they're different sizes. Like donuts are not the same diameter as a tennis ball can. Maybe they're like Krispy Kreme donuts, like little little ones. Even Krispy Kreme ones are bigger than a tennis ball can. The only ones that are tennis ball cam size are donuts. That's right. Which are donuts only in the loosest, shittiest, driest <laughs> sense. And in the des- most desperate of times. <laughs> Anyways, uh, something inside is liquid that sloshes around inside the weird cylinder that is like a combination lock, basically. Uh, also, it's described as looking like a tubular multi-wheeled kaleidoscope. Dan Brown doesn't yeah, know what a kaleidoscope you know, a, is. You know, a tubular multi-wheeled kaleidoscope. <laughs> that thing. But Sophie recognizes what it is. It's a it's a cryptex. Yeah, because which, her... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh. Uh, so her grandfather had a hobby of making models of inventions that Leonardo da Vinci had sketched, but maybe never made. Mm-hmm. And according to Sophie, this is one of these. Did you find out if cryptexes are a thing that's actually in da vinci's sketches because i didn't i didn't find that out okay whatever like maybe 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 not i mean they weren't called he said she said she didn't know they were called that because uh probably her grandfather came up with that name Mm -hmm. because it's a mix of crypt as in cryptology because you have to know the five digit or character code to open it and then dex because inside of it is a codex Mm -hmm. or parchment wrapped around a little vial of vinegar and so if you try to force it open then it's going to break the vial and melt your papyrus papyrus 
again. The piracy. This time, like, there's actually a reason, though. Yeah. And, like, he, I, I think someone must have yelled at him for the Angels and Demons one. Because, um, where is it? I don't know. Whenever she, whenever she says papyrus, Langdon's like papyrus, and she's like, "Yes, even uh, specifically papyrus." Even though, of course, we all know that vellum or parchment was in more common use at the time because it was more durable and made of animal hide, which was something you could obtain in Europe as opposed to papyrus. Which, once the kind of early medieval period hits, you lose a lot of your commerce with Egypt mm-hmm. and Africa, and so papyrus becomes harder to come by. No new research was harmed in the making of this book. Yeah. Earlier, he says, uh, why not smash it? You explained why. Um, the metal looks delicate and marble is a soft rock. And, you know, whatever. But also, like, it wasn't so soft when it was, like, crushing his arm or the Hassassin's arm or whatever. That's true. And it really is soft, I have to imagine, in a relative sense. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's not... It's on granite. Anyway. You can't just like pull apart a block of marble with your bare hands. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Lincoln is like, oh my God, I know what this is. And he doesn't tell us. So we go to the next chapter where he does tell oh, us. Oh yeah, because because uh, whatever is in this box, so the box of the sign of the rose, so this cryptex is underneath the sign of the rose or sub rosa. And that rings a bell for Robert Langdon. Mm-hmm. Langdon could scarcely believe his own supposition <laughs> maybe then you know be <laughs> langdon <laughs> that you're a crazy person <laughs> i hate when i can scarcely believe my own supposition <laughs> that feeling when you scarcely yeah. believe your own supposition um but he could only formulate one conclusion so that's, <laughs> that's all we can do he's holding the priory keystone it's the keystone it's a whole thing about the the cleft de voûte um, which means key of the vault, but like vault, like a vaulted ceiling. And so it's a little wedge that goes at the top of an archway. Apparently the actual French term for like that kind of keystone is actually a different thing. It's like wasur, I think. But I, I did some research on keystones mm. because there's this paragraph here that the keystones as a masonry technique for building stone archways had been one of the best kept secrets of the early Masonic Brotherhood. Which seemed wrong to me because, like, I fully skipped over that. Many, many societies developed stone arches, um, yeah, prior to whatever European context the Masonic order comes from. Have you ever seen an aqueduct? Aqueducts have keystones. I think the early Muslims developed the pointed arch that became, and that was I learned the beginning of the arches association with religious architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, various Near Eastern palaces used arches and keystones like it wasn't like a secret people were aware of them. an arch is like a basic way to organize an opening mm-hmm. so and he claims that this secret to building a vaulted archway was part of what had made the masons such wealthy craftsmen but i think it's just because they were good at making stones mm. i don't know guys <laughs> i tried to see if i could become a mason uh, i think you need to be a man no, there are uh, orders, like female orders. Huh. Um, but for the one in Los Angeles, I have to be 25. So I'm just biding my time so I can become a Mason. God, you're a child. <laughs> Don't say anything. <laughs> I'll be 25 in like a little over a year. Okay. I considered going to the Gnostic Church in LA for a little while just to see what it was like. But I never did it. I, uh, it, was like, it, was a, it was like somewhere in North Hollywood and I don't want to fucking drive Who wants there. to go there? 
Um, I I walked past a Masonic uh, lodge today in La Jolla, actually. So check it out. Anyways, anyway, <laughs> yeah, Langdon tells Sophie that he thinks this is the Priory Keystone, um, and that it's the key to finding the Holy Grail because the Keystone is said to be an encrypted stone hidden beneath the sign of the Rose. An encrypted stone? That's what it, that's what it is. Uh, it's a stone. I, I guess, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a stone, but Langdon didn't know what to say. Even to him, it sounded unbelievable, and yet the keystone was the only logical conclusion he could muster, because what he's holding is an encrypted stone hidden beneath the sign of the rose. Mm. And the, I guess the lore about the keystone is that it was hidden sub rosa. Okay. But what's weird about it... Okay, so Langdon says that all these grail seekers have been looking for the keystone incorporated into a high archway of some forgotten church. Because mm-hmm. then it would be beneath the sign of the rose. And then Sophie says the very reasonable thing. Well, this can't be the keystone because obviously my grandfather made this cryptex. And so it can't be old enough to be part of this ancient grail legend. And then Langdon says that the keystone is believed to have been created by the Priory sometime in the past couple of decades. So how did it get high on the archway of this church, if that's the case? Like, why would you think it was in an ancient church if it was just created recently? And you know that. I don't know. It's stupid. Because, like, in order for that to be the case, if the keystone was a literal keystone in an arch, as all these guys thought, the Priory of Sion would have had to, like, replace the keystone of an arch in an old church in order to make this work and like or else vandalize an existing one i guess but like idk guys so she says why would my grandfather give it to me i have no idea how to open it or what to do with it um so we don't know yet yeah um but we find out why they think the keystone was created recently so traditionally in the fictional organization of the prior of scion um, there's four show, one of whom is the Grand Master, and when one of them dies, then they elevate some lesser member of the Order to become a new Seneschal. And in the past, they would just pick someone and tell him the Grail secret that he could help them keep. But now, in the age of digital everything, um, they're afraid that like someone might be listening in somehow. And so they created this keystone. And if you were smart enough to solve the riddle and find the grail stuff yourself, then you could be the Seneschal. You need proven yourself on a grail quest. It's actually very... So what riddle would they have to solve to find it? So I think when we find out what the actual word to open the cryptex is, this is not going to make sense anymore. But I think the riddle is is being able to open this cryptex and then go from there to find the grail documents. Okay, so you, you have to have the cryptex. Yes. Which is... So when a Seneschal dies, I think what happens is... So in the old days, right, they'd pick a, another member of the Prior Scion and say, Oh, hey, here's where the grail is. And then he'd be a new Seneschal. I think that probably now they find someone who they think would be a good Seneschal and then make him prove his merit by saying, here's this thing, uh, find the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to follow a treasure hunt for the Grail to prove that you're worthy of being a Seneschal. So the keystone is a preuve de merit. Mm-hmm. If a rising priory Seneschal can open it, he proves himself worthy of the information it holds. This is what Sophie says. 
Yeah. And Langdon says, I forgot you'd had experience with this sort of thing. And I just wrote frowny face. Langdon, yeah. she's a cryptologist. In cryptology, it's called self-authorizing language. That is, if you're smart enough to read it, you're permitted to know what's being said. God damn it. Langdon needs... I, oh, he should be buried upside down in, a, in some sand. And so Langdon's like, your grandfather must have been pretty high up in the prior of Scion. And Sophie says, I'm pretty sure that he was very powerful. I'm pretty sure he was the top dog. <laughs> and he's like, how do you know that? And she's like, you know what? I don't what? want to talk about it. <laughs> Um, and so he's like, the Priory Grandmaster called a meeting with me? Like, why? And now he's, it's him and his, it, and he's with her, the granddaughter and they have the keystone. Inconceivable. No one <laughs> has ever used inconceivable. You can't use it now outside of the Princess Bride. You can't. <laughs> it's been, it's, it's been, it's it's been ironic. broken. And honestly, honestly, I think Dan Brown has seen it and thinks this is a cute joke everyone has seen the like surely everyone's yeah yeah and i think dan brown thinks he's being cute and he's like oh yeah, uh, yeah you know like this obscure movie the princess bride and everyone's like dan it's not obscure like it's Man, not two- people <laughs> who quote the princess bride are like people who quote like monty python and the holy girl like we can all do it like don't the last two weeks in a row when i've gotten home after playing at church on sunday it's been to my dad at the exact same scene in the princess bride both times <laughs> What scene is it? Uh, it's the it's the sword fight with um, Inigo oh, Montoya, so and at that point, who we believe is the Dread Pirate Roberts. Right. Oh, um, that's awesome. In this paragraph, where Langdon is trying to process the information that Sonier is the Grand Master of the Priory of Scion, mm-hmm. he says um, previous members or Grand Masters have also been distinguished public figures. Proof had been uncovered in the. Uh, Paris Bibliothèque Nationale papers known as Les Dossiers Secrets. Are these the things that were discovered in the 70s and these, then promptly... I think I think, I, I think I was looking it up yesterday to verify this. I think discovered in the late 50s or early 60s mm. and almost immediately... Discredited. Discredited. Okay. And, as a, and not as Langdon says... Uh, they Langdon or Dan Brown says that they had been authenticated by many specialists and incontrovertibly confirmed, which is just wildly untrue. <laughs> so this this, just this a straight lie. <laughs> this this one guy wrote the papers because a couple of years before he'd founded an organization called the Priory of Scion that was just like a Catholic Brotherhood thing, like the Knights of Columbus. Uh-huh. And then he decided he wanted to like fabricate this long history for it so he wrote up the les dossiers along with like a couple other documents that he also forged for various other purposes and just like put them in the library wow um, did he put it's, a, it's like a cool. dewey decimal system number on it and everything uh yeah item number four degree lm superscript one 249 apparently Whatever that is. Did you write it down? No, I just in a book. So yeah, that, that makes Langdon confused as to why Sonier had wanted to talk to him in the first place. Um, when he called him for the meeting, that's why they suspected Langdon in the first place. And he can't figure it out. And now Vernet is suddenly pulling over and we don't know why. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, he opens the door and is holding a gun in their faces. That's right. Vernet has, doesn't hold guns, but he's trying his best. He looks awkward with it. Yeah. Um, he says, put the box down. And then he's like, Langdon's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, protecting my client's assets. I don't know what the deal is with you, but you're connected with this murder and three other murders. Yeah, tonight. one murder was fine. Four murders. <laughs> this is a problem. Um, can you describe what Andre Vernet's eyes looked like 
um, when he was holding the gun on them. Because people's eyes in Dan Brown books are incredibly expressive. Where are I can't? I'm oh, sorry. his eyes shone with a determination that Langdon sensed would be unwise to test. Oh, okay. I just underlined Vernay's visage turned ice cold in eerie transformation. God, I didn't notice that one. <laughs> um, so he's like, so, so what? You, so what are you gonna do? Like, sh- so if he's like, what are you gonna shoot us? Like, you're not gonna turn us in. Because uh, he would have driven us back to the bank. So what are you going to do? Um, so I guess what he's going to do is... What's his plan? Remove the box, leave it somewhere, drive them back to the bank, and then retrieve the box? His, his plan, plan has always been somewhat opaque to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, so we're in... Sorry, we're in the... Okay, let's go from beginning. Yeah. He's put these two murder suspects in, into his truck in the truck with the the box yeah i think th- i think at that point with fully the intention of helping them yes but he's gone and he's received information during the trip that they're wanted for three more murders right so he decides you know what i can't really trust them so let me stop the car although they can't see where they are they're not going to notice that they've turned around or anything. Well, you can't bring him back to the police directly inside his prison car because then the police would have the box that then he doesn't want them to have the box put in evidence. Yeah. So he's so he has now pulled over and he's got a gun trained on them and he wants them to give him the box. But they're going to go back into the truck. He's not going to mm-hmm. just leave them on the side of the road. No. Or alert the authorities to where they are. No, he's getting the box out of the truck probably to bring it with him in the cab. Okay. And so, yeah, I guess you could stash it somewhere and then give them to the police and say, I don't know what he would say. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know how they got their officer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad plan, Renee. <laughs> um, but it's foiled anyways, because he gets the box out of the car. He like makes Langdon walk up and set it down and. He's like, now I'm having you do this, Mr. Langdon, because unlike Sophie, I will not hesitate to shoot you. And Langdon cleverly. Um, so Vernon oh, has shot a warning shot. Yeah, he fires a warning shot. Yeah. I, I, that is important. Yeah. And Which leaves so, a shell on the ground mm-hmm, on which, the floor of the. Uh, yeah, the truck. And so Langdon takes that and like. He kicks st- it into subtly, where the door will slide down or something. Yeah, because that is true. Like a truck door. For whatever reason, even though they're just these big ass iron things, are the most sensitive to like being slightly out of position. It's like won't close; they're impossible. Do you have a lot of experience with truck doors? A fair amount. Okay. Um, not armored cars, but just like moving trucks and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And every single time, there's some snafu where some shit gets in the door, and it could be like a speck of dirt, and the door won't close, and you have to like. Uh, this is a slight exaggeration, but like, <laughs> it's it's very frustrating. You know what? I bet Dan Brown moved recently and has something similar, to, like mm-hmm. where his like shoelace got caught in something, and like yeah. the door would never close. And now he he knows about that. Yeah. So Robert sabotaged it. Renee can't get the door closed. He has to put down the box, and he's like trying to close the door. At which point, Robert Langdon erupts out of it with his swimmer's shoulders and knocks Renee to the ground and gives him a bloody nose. And then they steal the truck and and the box and leave Renee on the side of the did, road did in the woods. The gun too. Yes. Good. Uh, and so they, they drive away and it's like, is that it? It's all. I don't know. I don't. That's it. I'm not sure that we know if they take the gun. It's just a bad plan. 
I don't think it mentions they take the gun. I just assumed they did. They should. If they don't, they're stupid. I, don't, I have nothing to say for 50. It's boring. <laughs> no, Oringarosa drives away from Castle Gandolfo after his meeting with 20 million euro in Vatican bank bonds. And he's worried that he missed a call on his cell phone because there's no service in the mountains. And he's worried the teacher will assume that he took the money in. Yeah. It's time for 187 men to avoid. We're starting with number 43. I'm disappointed that like the music's not playing in real life. Yeah, we're going to start with one that's a personal attack on me. <laughs> and on my boyfriend. <laughs> Men who can sing the entire Gilligan's Island theme from memory. It's a fun party trick, Dan. <laughs> Fuck you. Okay, I'm glad you didn't just go for it right there. We don't have the time. No. Don't, don't. Okay. <laughs> or the copyright. Men who make balloon animals. Also fun and it delights children. Why yeah. do you hate joy? It's hard to do also. It requires dexterity. Yeah, I had a book on it once when I was a kid and I was real bad at it. Yeah. <laughs> Number 45, men who stir fry. What the fuck? I'm, stir fry is great. <laughs> I have, I'm actually not, I'm a little curious about what this, does that mean that that is an inferior method of cooking or that cooking, or is, is it an advanced method of cooking? I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty easy thing to do. It's like what you do when you're, you know, you've just got all these things you that can go together in a dish, but you don't really want to work that hard at it, so you just toss it all in a pan or a wok and I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't stir fry it up? Yeah, I'm upset about that one. I don't know. At least he's cooking. This is an especially bad set we're getting. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Men with centerfolds in their gym lockers. Yeah, that's fair. I don't that's that. gross. Don't do that. 47. Men who watch American Gladiators. That sounds fine to me. What is American Gladiators? I don't know. I can't. I think it used to be different than it is now. It was from 1989 to 1997. It has a bunch of like basically male and female bodybuilders doing like ridiculous feats of strength. So they did like the a pyramid, and so they they would do like feats of strength like joust or tug of war or. Um, like climbing the wall. They would do jousts? Stuff. They would do jousts. Yeah, you, sh- you should watch this show. I'm sorry. <laughs> if there's jousting on TV, uh, you should have to watch it. <laughs> I think any show that involves people... Did you know that- jousting is the, national- is the state sport of Maryland? I think. <laughs> they would. I don't know. <laughs> um, any show that where people with like incredible physical strength and other skills like show them off, I think, is a worthwhile show. Especially if it's jousting. Yeah. I think wrong, it might, wrong again, Dan. It may be like like not on horses jousting, like What other kind of jousting? Oh, oh your ostriches, of course. No <laughs> No no. I mean, have you ever seen where people like stand on two different platforms and like joust at each other until uh, one of you falls off? Yeah, that's less fun, but it's still cool. Yeah. I would watch it. I Everyone spend- is ripped as fuck. No, we're, watching <laughs> we're watching a joust. Actually. Are you as strong as these people are? Watching it now. <laughs> this one? No, it's ending now. 
Anyway. You should watch American Gladiator. You should date people who watch American Gladiator. I know they brought it back in the early 2000s. Okay, last one. Men who play Twister. I recently went to a party where me and all my friends and their boyfriends, we all played Twister. Flexibility, you know? Yeah, I haven't played Twister as like an adult person, but... It it's not like fun. I don't really like Twister, but like, what's wrong I mean, with playing Twister? I can see avoiding someone who, like, you don't know them very well, and they're like, "Want to play Twister?" That's no good. That's gross. I don't uh, like that. But also, in three by Britney Spears, is there a line about Twister on the floor? What do you say? Manny's the more triple fun that way. Twister on the floor. What do you say? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Manny's the more. <laughs> that song that you just dunked on for no reason. <laughs> yeah, it was, even though it's, it was a number one hit. Uh. <laughs> I always thought that I was the only person that liked it. I don't know. Okay, chapter fifty-one of the Da Vinci Code. They're rolling down the highway on their stolen uh, armored car now. When they were making their escape, they'd been pulled off to like a clearing in the woods. And they fucked up driving away, so they, like, knocked off the bumper of the car and is scraping on the road now spraying sparks. And he says, I guess the armored part is just the cargo area, not yeah, the no cab. Yeah, no shit, dumbass. But no, the cab is no armored. I just I just made it sound like I didn't know, know that. <laughs> I'm very smart. They have bulletproof glass because but you can't shoot the driver. not bumpers. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> But it's not just the cargo area that is armored. Also, like even when something is armored and you hit a tree at speed, <laughs> it's not necessarily <laughs> going to fare very well. Langdon's figured out that the other three murders must be the other three Sunny Show, and that explains why Sonier was so desperate to get the message out to one of them because no one else was alive with the key- secret of the Keystone anymore. <laughs> they, they drive. <laughs> they drive several kilometers now with the bumpers spraying sparks up off the road, and Langdon's watch is like, "I wonder if this is dangerous." Either way, if we pass another car, it will certainly draw attention. So they, they don't pass any other cars. <laughs> so, for several I mean, kilometers? it is like one in the morning. So um, they're in Paris, <laughs> just outside Paris in the woods. Um, and so they decide to pull over so Landing can see if he can bend this bumper back with his manly strength. Oh, I had a really cool thing about uh, armored cars, actually, to say. Go for it. Uh, I did some research, and the armored vehicle was invented in one of Leonardo da Vinci's sketches huh. in 1485. Isn't that funny? Well, wait. No one before 1485 had the idea to armor up like that's a right that can't be true i mean it was the first like armored vehicle and it had like cannons p- pointing out and it was on it was a circular platform with cannons and it was but the design proved to be flawed they didn't make <laughs> but it doesn't make any sense like the romans had wagons and shit and probably they put like stuff on them to make people not steal the stuff in the wagon look and the entire the entire medieval period was full of people just shoving armor on shit they put armor on horses isn't that an armored vehicle it's called barding <laughs> is it yeah <laughs> um when my brother was really little i was talking to him about like the chest plate of a horse mm-hmm. i guess and i was like i get we were talking i don't know he was four so he could barely talk anyway <laughs> but we were talking about um I guess, I don't know, some kind of war horse situation. Mm-hmm. And my brother was like, yeah, but that's why they put uh, armor on the chest. And I said, whose chest? And he was like, okay, they put armor on the whose chest. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Oh, that rules. Uh, <laughs> so cute. Kids do say the darndest things. <laughs> anyway. Um, blah, 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 blah. The priory has been infiltrated. They've been compromised. We can't get the keys done back to them because of that. Uh, the truck's all fucked up. There's a lot of tell, don't show that happens here. Um, accompanying the gravity of being a hunted man, Langdon was starting to feel the ponderous weight of responsibility, the prospect that he and Sophie might actually be holding an encrypted set of directions to one of the most enduring mysteries of all time. As if the burden was not great enough, Langdon now realized that any possibility of finding a way to return the keystone to the Priory had just evaporated. And it's just like, stop telling me his state of mind. Well, he also has a, he also has a realization dawning on him. Um, mm. As he repeatedly kicked the twisted metal, he recalled his earlier conversation with Sophie that her grandfather had left her a phone message about the truth about her family. Mm. At the time, it had meant nothing, but now knowing the Priory of Sion was involved, Langdon felt a startling new possibility emerge. Mm. And that okay. will become clearer later. Um, inside, Sophie is experiencing the only emotion that uh, women in Dan Brown novels experience other than uh, attraction to Robert Langdon, and that emotion is resentment. Um, and she's sitting there and resenting the box and resenting her grandfather and resenting the weight of the box on her lap. She's also experiencing confusion. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. Another, that's, that's another, a, another commonly one. womanly common womanly trait. She tries uh, three extremely stupid words, <laughs> Grail, Vinci, and Voot. Uh, V-O-U-T-E, which means vault. Yeah, none of those None of those are the right combination, though. I'm surprised you didn't try roses. I'm going to read to you some things real quick. Let's do it. Uh, she was told to find Robert Langdon. Her grandfather's rationale for including him was now clear. Sophie was not equipped to understand her grandfather's intentions, and so he has assigned Robert Langdon as her guide, a tutor, to oversee her education. Um gross i don't like that he's her tutor i think that's gross and also uh i don't like the that sophie's like you're right i'm not equipped to do this i'm very dependent if he's her tutor it says some troubling things about robert langdon's approach to his students (laughs) yes it does i would like to move on i would love to move on (laughs) langdon Um, wants to Take them to go to his friend's house, which is near Versailles. Yeah. Uh, Lee Lee? I think that's how you pronounce L-E-I-G-H. Last time I said Lee and you said Lay. No, that's not what happened. Oh. I have recorded evidence. <laughs> okay. Uh, who is an analog for John Voight's character, National Treasure, once again. Um, there's a great line here. Lee Teabing was wealthy in the way small countries were wealthy. Does it mean that, like... He has as much money as a small country would. Or That's does, what I took away. Or does it mean, but in the way small countries were wealthy. I mean, yeah, I mean does he mean like mostly based in natural resources? <laughs> like, I just assumed he meant in terms of the amount. <laughs> but it could also just be that he's landed gentry. He is a descendant of Britain's first Duke of Lancaster, who was a guy called Thomas or something, or no, Henry or something. Cool. Henry or Thomas. Everyone in England in the year 12, whatever the fuck, which is when the first Duke of Lancaster was around, was named either Thomas or Henry. That's and he true. was one of those. Oh, Teabing had helped the BBC produce a documentary to explo- expose the explosive history of the Holy Grail to a mainstream television audience. But, and so he like got some reputable scientists and historians like Robert Langdon on to, you know, shore up this thing's credentials. 
but it was too controversial in England, so they wouldn't even air it in America, even though the History Channel airs basically this exact documentary every 15 minutes. Yeah, um, it's it's very funny to me. Also, Dan Brown loves to overstate the cultural significance of like the obscure shit that he knows about. <laughs> Everyone was so mad. Oh, my yeah. God. Um, although, like... No one in Angels and Demons stopped him and was like, hey, aren't you that, like, holy grail conspiracy theorist from the BBC from, like, seven years ago? Like, that didn't happen. That's true. If it was that controversial. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so they're going to the Chateau Villette to see Lee Teabing. Cool. Yeah. We're um, on a grail quest, Sophie. Who better to help us than a knight? Yeah, it's stupid. Uh. Sophie's, like, 20 minutes away. That's really far. And so I was like, oh, we're going to go see Aringarosa for a second. But we didn't. We were yeah. immediately there. So Sir Lee Teabing is, like, extraordinarily head-ass. He's such an <laughs> asshole. And has placed the um, the intercom on the right side of the driver, like, on the passenger side, because that's how things are in Britain, just because he's, like, a dick. <laughs> so Robert Lane has to reach across Sophie. Yeah, he's driving now, yeah. right? Has to reach across Sophie to talk into the Because you can't allow women to use the intercom i mean admittedly it is because robert knows lee teeping and yeah. so he doesn't but it's still stupid and so it says here as he did an alluring whiff of sophie's perfume filled his nostrils and he realized how close they were this is gross but also the modifier there should be before perfume and not whiff um because a whiff is like a smell like not a smell as in like a scent but like the act of smelling like you catch a whiff of vinegar or something it's only it only happens when you smell in, yeah. so it, that wouldn't be alluring. But the perfume itself is alluring. It's a misplaced modifier. Maybe, but I'm okay with it. I'm it work, okay it with works it. for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. I mean, I'm not okay with that sentence on like a actual level, but like as 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 far as getting across what's getting across, I think it I think it works better for me than a whiff of Sophie's alluring perfume would work. No, but well, it's fine. Agree to disagree. <laughs> Um, I'm defending the defenseless. <laughs> All Dan Brown has to stop us from making fun of his work is millions and millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> Endless lawyers. And we're just waiting to get as, 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 as we come at him with, with two microphones and a barely functioning audio program. <laughs> mm. So the butler's like, it's too late, go home. And he's like, okay, but please let us in. It's about the Holy Grail. Teabing comes to the phone, um, and he does uh, like a a riddle so that they can cross the bridge, basically. Um, and it's like, what kind of do you want, coffee or tea? And Langdon's like, oh ho ho, I know what this is, Earl tea. Grey tea, please. Earl Grey. Would you like milk or sugar? And he's like, milk, because Sophie guessed milk, but she's an idiot, and so nothing happens. And he says, oh, no, lemon, lemon. It's Earl Grey with lemon. And then they're allowed in. Oh, no, there's a joke there's about a, there's rowing. A, there's a third There's a riddle. Finally, I must make the most grave of inquiries. Teeping paused and then spoke in a solemn tone. You'd think you'd have an English accent. You'd be wrong. <laughs> in which year did a Harvard scholar last outrow an Oxford man at Henley? Oxford man. <laughs> Langdon had no idea, but he could only imagine one reason the question had been asked. Surely such a travesty has never occurred. Your heart is true, my friend. You may pass. 
Yeah. Dan Brown has seen like an episode of Upstairs Downstairs, so he knows like a little bit about British people. And that's this cool. scene in the movie is actually good, but it's only because Ian McKellen plays Lee Teabing. Whoa, <laughs> that's dope. Okay. <laughs> We're back to Vernet. Monsieur Vernet, the night direct manager of the depository bank of blah, blah, blah. He was relieved to hear the bank president's voice on the phone. Um, Vernet's in trouble because he's been abandoned on the side of the road in the woods outside of Paris. <laughs> he's like, can you come get me? Um, also, there's an emergency transponder on the armored vehicle. That yeah, it's got Lojack. The Lojack system. And... Um, uh, find it basically yeah so he hasn't turned it on even though it will alert interpol at this point he's kind of out of options yeah and he's still in the woods yeah langdon and sophie are driving up to t bing's house and on the way they're deciding that they're gonna like hide the cryptex from him inside of robert langdon's jacket which he'll like stash somewhere away before he comes in to see them mm-hmm. and he warns he warns her that lee t bing's a little weird in case she couldn't tell from the fact that he bought uh historical estate and fucked it up so the intercoms on the wrong side and made them get in by answering questions about tea and rowing like she could have figured out that he was a weird dude but um the air inside is still like antediluvian Mm -hmm. so yeah it was created before the flood yeah 1700s love air created before the flood um the butler's there and he's like scowling at them and he's like, oh, there's a bunched up tweed in your arms. Can I take your yeah. jacket? And like Langdon's like, no, I'd like to carry my tweed bunched up in my yeah. arms. Thanks. And the butler sniffs at him. And, oh, of course. He's yeah, French. Of course. So, you know, yeah. ho, ho, ho. he's a Lyonnais actually. Ooh. Um, uh, it's beautiful in there. Um, I'm not going to go through everything. That's yeah. Sophie can't figure out where to sit because everything's too nice to sit on. But eventually she does she sit on the Renaissance Velvet Divan with Robert Langdon? Is that what we're left to Yeah. Assume no, it says that exactly. I would sit on a different chair. Same. I, I, I don't like sitting on the same chair with people. <laughs> uh, David likes to, when we're at a restaurant and we're at a booth, like sit next to me in the booth. I don't but, like yeah. it. I kind of don't like it. <laughs> no, but like I, I get the impetus for it, but it has never made sense to me. I can't like see the person. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, they're sitting next to each other on this chair that has the cryptex under it. Um, He's got nice paintings. It's beautiful in there. There's a bust of whatever. Of Isis. He, uh, uh, T-Bing compliments Sophie's English. She says, I studied the Royal Holloway. And he's like, I schooled just down the road at Oxford. Which, like, what, like, British aristocrat hasn't? Like, is it even a point of pride at that point? Some of them go to, like, Cambridge. <laughs> right. Like, you're, you're going to a, a good school. Like, get out of here. He's like, I applied to Harvard at my, as That's my, my safe, safety yeah. school. And I'm like, you going to Oxford is not a mark of your intelligence. <laughs> like, yeah. I think if you're a descendant of the Duke of anywhere and like you're still, I don't know if he has a title aside from a later knighthood that he earned, but like, mm-hmm. I think if you're a rich old money family in Britain, you don't even have to apply to go to Oxford. Yeah. Like you just walk in and they're like, oh yes, of course. <laughs> We're not impressed. Teabing. <laughs> Um, and weirdly for this guy, he finally, he finally walks in the room. Um, and the first thing he says is, Sir Robert. And this is a man who insists on being called Sir in honor of his own knighthood. I can't imagine he would give Robert Langdon the honor of calling him Sir Robert. 
Oh, that's gross. I just So Robert, I see you travel with a maiden. This guy is like <laughs> is like the 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 most the utmost like fedora neckbeard ever. Yeah, he's like a um, he's like a LARP guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> LARP guy. Um it's extremely gross. Later later he says milady. He does um, as he's kissing her hand. Yeah, he goes, touche. My only carnal pleasures these days seem to be culinary. And then he breathes lightly on her fingers and says, milady. After talking about his carnal pleasures, it's so gross. This guy's like ancient. He's he's, and, like, he's very into and he ta- sex stuff. Yeah, he talks about her being a maiden. And then later, just the gross the grossness. Yeah, so Langdon basically says... You know, I told her a certain amount of the history of this grail stuff, but I want to leave like the big thing to you because you're the expert. Mm-hmm. And he says, Robert, you brought me a virgin. And Robert's like, that's what we in the grail community call people who don't know the grail, which like every subculture has that. that exact same thing with the same word. The so Rocky Horror Picture you're, Show. Yeah, you're not, you're not special. The lesbian bar. The Holy Grail community. <laughs> um, and then teething how much do you know and she tells him um and she and he goes that's all robert i thought you were a gentleman you've robbed her of the climax I'm like no and then langdon's uncomfortable with the metaphor and he says i thought i know i thought perhaps you and i could langdon apparently <laughs> decided unseem the unseemly metaphor had gone far enough speaking of three by britney spears um <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to already had Sophie locked in his twinkling gaze. No. <laughs> you are a grail virgin, my dear, and trust me, he will never forget your first time. It's so gross. Hashtag me too. Hashtag time's up. It is not okay. It is not an okay <laughs> way to speak to women ever about anything. <laughs> so, Demon. Im- imagine this. You're a, uh, what? 70 year old let's say um bad time already man at two in the morning you get out of bed you have like apparently some a pretty serious case of polio so you're on crutches Mm -hmm. you go downstairs uh you make a phone call first we don't find out about that yet though Mm. but you go downstairs and it's two in the morning you've just woken up you're an old man and you're like immediately just in that horny headspace <laughs> an old man <laughs> yeah it's so gross i'm so mad and sophie's like 30 this is certainly going to color my rating of this uh section um yeah sophie's like 30 yeah so now we get a exposition thing double team from langdon oh and God. Why, why i didn't do you have to i didn't i, did, I, did, I, did, I, did, I wasn't even trying to do that how dare you uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> i i remember at the end of 54 i like took a break because i was like <laughs> i really don't want to read this lecture at all i wouldn't eat like a lot of ice cream <laughs> yeah um and uh this lecture is just full of lies Good. I'm see. I I was gonna look up anything, but then I didn't because I figured yeah. you would get mad at the lies and probably look up some things. So it starts off with Teabing explaining Da Vinci's opinion towards the New Testament mm-hmm. with some. It's a book. He gets the quotes from a book about the life of Da Vinci, mm-hmm. but then apparently the book just throughout it is just a series of isolated quotes <laughs> each attributed individually to leonardo da vinci 
So, one, many have made a trade of delusions and false miracles deceiving the stupid multitude. M dash Leonardo da Vinci. M dash M dash. And like, are. (laughs) And like, are these um, supposed to be like epigrams, epigraphs at the start of a chapter? And if so, why do you need to attribute them each time to Leonardo? Like, if the book's about him. So, uh, I'll tell you something that I know. Uh huh. He points to one quote, and then it doesn't say he turns the page and points to another quote. <laughs> so it's just like some list of quotes <laughs> without context. And they're it's, all attributed to Leonardo. Yeah, Vinci. blinding ignorance does mislead us. Oh, wretched mortals, open your eyes. M dash. How dark Leonardo the da Vinci. Of man. Um, Sophie felt a chill. Is Da Vinci talking about the Bible? And Teabing's like, yes. Um, <laughs> Good. Is Sean Connery? Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit. <laughs> I, I, Sean Connery would be better for him than Ian McKellen was because he's described as like kind of a portly guy. Yeah. One thing Ian McKellen is not is a portly guy. So he's fat and has polio and is ancient and that's it's why, 2 a.m. That's, that's, that's why he can't have any carnal pleasures. Um, the Bible is a product of man, my dear, not God. Did not fall magically from the clouds. Oh, you missed my, my favorite quote from this chapter. Oh. The Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. <laughs> Facts? Yeah. <laughs> Facts. Terrible. I'm mean, so, an old man. Yeah. We're going to get into... I'm, I'm going to get a little more involved in this than I should just because it made me mad. It says, man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, which is not true. Most, like, most of the books of the Bible are written in various different historical genres, none of which is really a historical record primarily. It's not the purpose of it. Mm. And then history has never had a definitive version of the book, which like history has had a number of definitive versions of the book. That's right. Like the Vulgate is fairly definitive. The Septuagint is fairly definitive. Like all these things are definitive versions of these collections of books. Um, <laughs> and then uh, he says that Jesus Christ was a historical figure of staggering influence and, um, understandably his life was recorded by thousands of followers across the land, which is just straight up not true so he essentially goes on to explain here about all these gospel accounts and says that matthew mark luke and john are just four among many gospel writings written by all these people he's all these gnostic gospels covered at nag hammadi and in the dead sea scrolls and the vast majority of those were written well after the four canonic gospels um when he makes the opposite claim, he says he takes the fact that we call it the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Mary Magdalene to say that they were in fact written by these people. When in fact they were just written in a long line of Eastern Mediterranean, uh, style. It was a whole genre where you'd write in the voice of somebody, mm-hmm. even if they were long dead mm-hmm. and just claim these writings were theirs. And it wasn't like plagiarism. It was just like a way of writing and you were a follower of this person. So you were writing as if you were them because you were supposedly teaching their views. Which is why some of the books that are attributed to St. Peter in the current Bible are disputed because some of the letters from St. Peter might have been works in this same kind of style where you're writing as if you were St. Peter, but you aren't, in fact. Sorry, guys. I meant Paul. Uh, He also says that Constantine, the Roman emperor, is the one who codified the modern Bible we have today, which is just not true in any way. He did make Christianity the official religion of Rome, and he did call the Nicene Council, which was important as an event because it sort of established the secular authority of the emperor to make some commanding choices in the church. 
But at the Council of Nicaea, they did not come up with a canonic Bible that happened to the council like 70 years later. Um, the Council of Nicaea, the big issue was just the Arian heresy, which was the question over whether Jesus was fully the same divine being as God or whether there had been some time prior to the existence of Jesus. And it's essentially a Trinitarian versus non-Trinitarian debate. And that's what I have to say about that. Okay. I learned a lot. It was all cle- well organized and well explained. <laughs> uh, my note here says, I bet Forrest is going to get his britches in a twist. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he says that Constantine and the Nicene Council is all about uh, establishing Jesus as a divine figure as opposed to a fully human one. Mm-hmm which like was a big issue in the early church, but it wasn't like they just decided to solve it in the fourth century or whatever. Like it had been an issue for a long time. And it was not the case where like the original Christians all thought that Jesus was fully human. And just like 200 years later, someone was like, wouldn't it be good though, if he was like God, (laughs) um, like that debate had been there very early on from the earliest kinds of official Christian writings we get. And Bishop Irenaeus, well before Constantine, is has devoted his life fully to trying to document and discredit all the various forms of heresy he comes across. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I forgot a lot of this chapter just because yeah. it was so dense and full yeah. of lies. So, so they bridge from this thing about how you make the gospel canon and that the point of it is to establish the divinity of Christ and erase his humanity. And then one of the ways you... Uh, erase his humanity happens to be um, I don't know no but it's not yet the reason why they want to do that is essentially to consolidate power mm-hmm. um, because if that's the only way you can like have access to the divine is through the church right yeah and then you, you're forced to follow the church but like you can do that even if just God the Father is divine like God the Son doesn't have to be fully divine or Jesus Christ doesn't be fully divine in order for you, the church to still be your conduit to God the Father who is uh, the one God yeah I mean that's how Islam works yeah right? <laughs> and that's it's really struggled to hold on political power in various places <laughs> um, um, it says here and someone asked like do devout Christians send you hate mail on a d- daily basis and he's like no most uh, the vast majority of educated Christians know the history of their faith. And just a couple of things. A, no, you should, don't. you could still be getting hate mail on a daily basis. You got a ton of hate mail for that BBC thing yeah. that nobody cared about. And also the vast majority, majority of educated Christians is cherry picking as fuck. That's true. <laughs> like how educated to what extent, how many of those are there and how many people, how many, how much hate mail would you still get? Even if I'm, also, like, I know a lot of educated Christians, and I don't know any of them who would be able to talk to you very cogently for any length of time about, like, the early church history. Mm-hmm. Maybe, like, one. But, That's how we have Forrest. Um, and I'm still learning, guys, about the early church, because there's a lot that happens there. <laughs> it's very complicated. <laughs> it's a long time, and um, a lot of things happen. Yeah. So then we bridge over to the Last Supper, because we were talking about da Vinci's specific ideas about the New Testament and the things it has right and wrong. And the best way to look at da Vinci's kind of undercutting of Vatican orthodoxy is with the fresco, the last supper, which did you know is not a true fresco? I didn't know that. So like a fresco is you'd like 
mix in the paint with the plaster, right? Temper the plaster, yeah. Um, But Da Vinci wanted to work for a long time on The Last Supper, so he just basically treated the wall so it would be kind of a canvas and then put a bright white layer over it so the oils would shine more and then paint it like a normal painting on top of the wall. It took five years and the monks got really mad at him for taking so long. (laughs) I would too. This is my house. Apparently the letter he sent back is like, sorry it's taking me so long. I'm trying to think of the perfect face for Judas and maybe I'll use whoever the fuck complained about (laughs) it. (laughs) I love that. It rules. I hope it's true. It might be apocryphal, (laughs) but I really want it to be true. (laughs) And so Teabing has Sophie close her eyes and tell him about the Last Supper. So where is Jesus sitting in the middle? And what are are he and the disciples eating? Oh, you know, they're eating bread. And what are they drinking? They're drinking wine. How many wine glasses are on the table? And Sophie's like, no, there's only one chalice. It's the cup of the Holy Grail. So one cup. But no. All the disciples have their own cup. But I, okay, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like a genius, but I do know about what the Last Supper looks like, Mm -hmm. right? I have had like a rudimentary art history education. Um, Sophie was raised by perhaps the most accomplished art historian on earth. Why would she not know about what the cups look like in the Last Supper? Yeah, I mean, so I, I, he was I go... He a Da Vinci freak. Yeah, I go sort of back and forth on this. On the one hand, like, if it were literally anyone other than Sophie Naveau, who'd been raised by Jacques Saunier, the big Da Vinci guy, like, this tracks for me. Because, like, you know, when I was first reading this book, I was, like, aware that the Last Supper was a painting. And it was like, oh, it's, like, the people, and there's the windows in the back. But, mm-hmm. like, oh, whatever. So Last <laughs> Supper, you know, like, you don't look at it that long. Um <laughs> And so, like, I would not have been able to tell you that they were drinking that wine out of little glasses as opposed to out of a big chalice. But Sophie's grandfather was a Da Vinci freak and seems like he would have noted it to her because he had a particular interest in it. So yeah. I don't know. Whatever. And so uh, it turns out that um, he lays it all out here that the Holy Grail is not a thing. It is, in fact, a person. And then we get another chapter chapter of even more explanation. (laughs) It's so awful. I was mind numbed. It was a bunch of sexual harassment. And then this for two long chapters. So he he spends a long time for like way too long explaining the symbols of the blade and the chalice. Okay. So it's the phallus and the chalice. It's an, it's an upside down V and a V. Yeah. And the the phallus is the man. It's the blade. It's the blade. The blade is phallic, but it's called the blade. Yes. Um, it would be silly if they rhymed. It, I thought they did <laughs> rhyme. I think they do later in the book. They uh, say phallus and chalice. Um, but yeah, the, the blade is basically just a chevron, and yeah. then the chalice is an it's inverted an upside one. Down chevron. And it resembles the female womb. I mean, I guess in some ways. Sure. <laughs> um, and then we do some more oh, So Dark the Con of Man. Yeah. Um, the power of the female and her ability to produce life was, uh, the magic of that was lost, and it posed, posed a threat to the rise of the predominantly male church, and so the sacred feminine had to be destroyed, basically, and made, like, unclean, so they invented the Eve story about the apple. Um and yeah you know how the christian church invented the eve story (laughs) 
right right after we get all the like nothing is original yeah. in christianity and they talk about the god eating again but they don't ascribe it they to the aztecs it, yeah. this time uh, they, but they i just it. i just want to be very clear here that genesis is not a christian text it is not um they say that the act of god eating was taken from earlier pagan mystery religions Ooh. that's that's like a thing yeah but I, I like to, to think of it as like a, like a mystery flavor. Yeah. <laughs> um, the grail is symbolic of the lost goddess. That's basically what we're getting, is that the holy grail is a woman. Um, so we're going to go look at Da Vinci's painting of the woman. Yes. And uh, Meanwhile, the manservant, Remy Le Galudec, sure. uh, is on the news, and he's also seeing Sophie and Robert wanted for murder. Yeah, he's about to... You know, do some things. We're back at the bank. Yep. It's a nice break before we get more explanation. So much more. Uh, yeah, so Calais at the bank and gets the ping from Interpol. Oh, yeah. That, oh, this is the address they're at because that's the car they have. Meanwhile, Flash is on an important call to someone. Mm -hmm. And 40 miles away, Silas is pulling up at the house where Robert and Sophie and we T-Bing are. We're not told that explicitly. No, but come on. <laughs> 40 kilometers away, a black Audi pulled off a rural road and parked in the shadows, peered through the rungs of the wrought iron fence that encircled the vast compound before him. Like, you don't you don't need to be Robert Langdon to solve this mystery. They go, to, they go to T-Bing's study to see the painting of the Holy Grail. Um, and his study used to be the ballroom of this palace, but he just calls it his study because he doesn't do much dancing. Again, the polio. The polio. Not... Uh, lest you forget uh, physical disabilities in a Dan Brown book might mark something about your interior uh, person and yeah. character. How <laughs> has know? he not had sex in like many, many years? Surely uh, <laughs> he's rich as fuck. I mean, I think I think probably if he wanted to, he could. But it's a health thing, do you? Th like, no, I, th I think it's just he's not as interested in it. In oh, the, as, he's not as interested in sex. I think he's not. As, I, don't, I don't think he's as interested in the actual action as he enjoys as he gets a kick out of talking about it in a creepy way. That's awful. Um, so he's like, look at look at the person sitting on the right of Jesus. And yeah. So. Just to be clear, he takes them into the study and then shows her a bigger copy of The Last Supper because he's made her walk to a different room to look at a different copy of the painting. Did she look at a copy in the last thing? I don't think she... Yeah, think no, she was... She, 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 he, he, oh, he, yeah, yeah. It was like in the Da Vinci book. There was like a little version. <laughs> but then he takes her in the room and she's like, this is The Last Supper. We were just looking at this. <laughs> and then he's like, but isn't this one better? <laughs> and she's like, I guess. Um, and then she's like, wait, this isn't... You told me the Holy Grail is a woman. This painting is of 13 men. Um, but then he then calls attention to the figure to Jesus's right hand, mm -hmm. which has long hair. It's, I believe, the only figure in the painting without a beard. Um, yeah. He describes it as having a bosom, which... Oh, no, no, no. Not any more than any other figure in that painting. Uh, They're all wearing the fairly hint, loose tunics. The hint of a bosom. A new fragrance by Langdon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, the orthodox opinion here is that that's the beloved disciple John, although there's also some debate as to whether John is the beloved disciple or whether the beloved disciple is someone else. But that's besides the point. Um, and then as one art historian notes, 
if you decide that John is in fact a woman, then you're sort of left to assume that the figure, I think the second from the left in the painting is also a woman because he also has fairly feminine features and long hair, mm-hmm. but he does have a beard. Uh, and he ascribes it instead to just the fact that Da Vinci has a fairly noted thing for androgyny in his art. He seems to be somewhat fascinated by the idea of androgynous figures. Mm-hmm. So it's Mary Magdalene. According to T-Bing. Yeah. And the Holy Grail. Yeah. Um, because she's the holy womb, right? She's yeah. And like, you know, Jesus and Mary slash John are angled away from each other in such a way that makes the shape of a chalice. And if you look at it the right way, the letter M, which might mean Mary. Yeah. Um, and they've got uh, like opposite outfits on. Yeah. To create like a yin yang situation. There's a really cool wing ding that he uses on 244. I don't know where he got it. And so Sophie's immediately like Mary Magdalene the prostitute, and then TBing is like, no, of course not. Mary Magdalene, the descendant of a of a, of a Jewish royal line from the house of Benjamin, uh, <laughs> much in the same way Jesus is of the royal line from the house of David, theoretically, which like maybe a branch of it, and like the genealogy at the beginning of either Matthew or Luke um, says that, but like. If Jesus is royalty, then what is he doing being a builder in Nazareth? Um, Go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) And so basically just they're saying that Mary Magdalene was vaguely of nobility and that Jesus is also nobility and therefore their union was like a royal one. And um, he posits that not only were they companions, they were also married because companion means spouse, companion means spouse in Aramaic. And it would be unusual for a Jewish man in first century Palestine to be unmarried. Although not if he was in a scene or in a branch related to the Essenes, which Jesus might've been. Um, and also like the gospels do take, note of everyone else in jesus's family his mother his father his siblings they'd probably mention a wife if we had one but, no uh, we have to remove the sacred feminine from the equation though yeah sorry sorry i didn't mean to remove the sacred feminine um, <laughs> um she cuts away to like a, a flashback about her grandpa that's not important um but then it comes back and just says sir lee teabing was still talking which like <laughs> appropriate yeah <laughs> oh yeah uh he's reading things from the gnostic gospels this time from the gospel of mary magdalene which is written like well after it's like one of the last gnostic gospels we think to be written um like well 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 after a couple generations after jesus and now they would do the big reveal of uh jesus was going to hand the church over to mary magdalene after mm-hmm. his death and it says, uh, Robert Langdon says, that was the plan. Jesus was the original feminist, which made me <laughs> close my book and like take a deep breath. <laughs> because what about the ancient matriarchal societies? No, they weren't. No, <laughs> like, it was Jesus. It's very upsetting. Um, and yeah, Peter fucked it all up. Well, we know, we know how Peter yeah, is. Yeah, and like in the, in, the, in the painting, if you interpret it right, you can look at it as Peter threatening the figure that's either John or Mary Magdalene. And... Then he says that there's a disembodied hand holding a dagger. But I love that painting. It's clearly just Peter holding the dagger weird. Yeah. Um, and it's foreshadowing that Peter is going to cut off the ear of the Roman soldier later on that evening in the mm. Garden of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Um, there's a lot of uh, really 
for people who are so uh, concerned with preserving the sacred feminine and uh, painting uh, early Christianity as being like very feminist and, and balanced, there's a lot of very like uh, biocentric language about the divinity of women. Yeah, um, there's a lot of like. The Grail legend speaks of the chalice that held the blood of Christ. It speaks, in fact, of Mary Magdalene, the female womb that carried <laughs> Jesus's royal bloodline. Yeah. So feminist. It's you know how women are good. wombs. Yeah, you know that's what I always think of them. Uh, she was the holy vessel, which is straight up incel language. Yeah, um, that's not good. talking about women as vessels. Um, let's see. It's just so feminist that her power fully lies in her fertility. It's very cool. It's a uh, very Cool. Love it. Um, and then we get to Sangreal. Yeah, so it turns out Mary Magdalene had a kid, and that is the royal bloodline, the holy bloodline, the royal blood, the song Real. So it um, says here, quite literally, the word Sangreal uh, derives from San Graal, or Holy Grail. But in its most ancient form, the word Sangreal was divided in a different spot. Tebing wrote on a piece of scrap paper and handed it to her. She read what he had written, Song Real, which is Holy Blood. So did it come Royal from... Blood. Which one did it come from? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't spend too much did time Did it come from it. the it Holy seemed, Grail or from seemed, the Royal Blood? It seemed too stupid to look into any it's further. extraordinarily stupid. Sipping from the cup till yeah. it runneth over. So chapter, 50, chapter 59, Aringarosa calls the New York headquarters of Opus Dei. is like, hey, any calls for me? And they're like, yes, someone left a phone number for you. And he's like, awesome. I'll call them. And then he's like, oh, my God, I missed a call. That was a teacher. So he calls the number. And it turns out to be the judicial police. And um, is it Fash on the other line? Oh, no. Uh, yeah. So another man comes on the phone after he confirms he's a Bishop Aringarosa. And he says he has much to discuss with the bishop. Last chapter. Unless Great. you have something to say about chapter 59. Was that 59? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, I, like, it's, I like didn't take care of It's a ring Rosa checking his voicemail in the most long form way possible. <laughs> 60. We're getting a previously on. Um, <laughs> Song Grail. Song Grail. Song Grail. Royal blood. Holy grail. It was all intertwined. It says it was all intertwined earlier about the keystone and the arch and the this and the that. Yeah. Um, you could just name the book. It was all intertwined, really. <laughs> um, but we do get a bibliography of other books that make the same hypothesis that Mary Magdalene is the Holy Grail. Did you look up any of them? Are I mean, they all real? Holy Blood, Holy Grail is definitely real because they sued him. <laughs> um, and I, I've, I didn't I've, know I've, that. And I've heard about the one with the alabaster jar, so I assume the other two are probably also real. Okay. Um, but a lot of feminist reading of the Gnostic Gospels is um, a little too optimistic about them, I will confess to you. They're not as feminist as we all want them to be. <laughs> I, I wish they were. Um, uh, so it talks about the, uh, the church doesn't like the book and the book has the five petal rose on it. And we talk about roses again, the five point of pentacle of Venus and the guiding compass rose and rose is identical. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, all the languages. It's, it's the same in English, French, German, other languages. And then Langdon does this thing where he's just bringing in unrelated facts for no reason. Yeah, why the fuck? It's also an anagram of Eros, the Greek god of sexual love, which it's not because Eros is spelled Epsilon, Rho, uh, I think Omega, Sigma, 
and I don't believe the Greek word for the Greek word for is definitely not an anagram of that because it, if it was pronounced rose, it wouldn't have an epsilon at the end. That's right. Why is any? That, why is this here? I didn't look it's up so what the Greek awful. word for rose is, but I should have in order to make sure I wasn't wrong about that. What do that. Greeks have to do with anything here? Well, I mean, sexual most, love. All the gospels are written in Greek. I mean, okay. Which I guess should have what, been noted when he's talking about the Gnostic gospels, which were not mostly written in Aramaic. All the gospels are written in Greek. <laughs> Anyway, the rose has been the premier symbol of female sexuality. Um, and the five petals represented the five stations of female life. Birth, menstruation, motherhood, menopause, and death. You know how <laughs> women are defined by their I, stages I, of fertility. I, I really missed that part. I'm oh, so yeah. Do you want to know the Greek word for rose? Yeah, go. Triantafulo. <laughs> you know, an anagram for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Wait, can I see it? It's so long. Yeah. This is where uh, the fact that I was trying to learn ancient Greek a while ago comes in handy because I can read Greek letters now. <laughs> it's a specialized skill. I'm proud of you. That yeah. was very helpful. Um, and also it looks like a vagina. Yeah. Which you'll know if you've seen any paintings by Georgia O'Keeffe. Yeah. Um, so the point here is that all of these books substantiate the same historical claim that Jesus was a father, yes, and that Mary Magdalene was the womb that carried... She was a person. Nope, she was an object. <laughs> so after the crucifixion, she's pregnant. She goes to France, then known as Gaul, to find safe refuge in the Jewish community. I haven't looked if there was a Jewish community in Gaul. Um, Why not, dude? You know. And they kept track of her there because she was a in the lineage of Jewish kings, which maybe. And um, then her subsequent family tree becomes the Merovingians, which is a claim you can make if you want to, (laughs) because no one really knows where the Merovingians came from. (laughs) What color are T-Bing's eyes? Um, I don't know. Hazel. Okay. They get misty here. Seems untrustworthy. Hmm? Seems untrustworthy. I mean... (laughs) I agree. There's somewhere, somewhere in here. I'm not going to look for it. Oh, yeah, here. Um, T-Bing says, As Napoleon once said, what is history but a fable agreed upon? By its very nature, history is always a one-sided account. Sophie had never thought of it that way. Yeah. And stop writing stupid women. You know, people realize that when they're 13, particularly well-educated women who have radical, you know, counterculture fa- grandfathers. Like... I'm just so... Uh, the section made me so mad for it. I, I, I like how we got mad at different time. parts about it. Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> the thing that made me mad is he talks about the Q document, a manuscript that even the Vatican admits they believe exists. Allegedly, it's the book of Jesus' teachings, possibly written in his own hand, which it, most likely Jesus Christ was illiterate, probably, or if so, not terribly literate. Um, and uh, the Q document is just a collection of the sayings of Jesus, and it's like a common source that you can tell that two of the other gospels were written using their source. Cause they've got enough in common that it's like, okay, these guys are both writing based on something else. And that hypothetical documents, the Q document, mm. I don't like, I've never, I've read a lot about the kind of textual history of the Bible. I've never read anyone by anyone saying anything that the Q documents written in Jesus's hand. All right. <clears throat> um, <laughs> Uh, also, the Magdalene Diaries, which is my least favorite um, Oscar-nominated drama. <laughs> um, and anyways, all these documents are supposed to be in four big chests that are along that the 
Templars found in the temple when they were digging in the temple with the priory and they took him over with them. Uh, and that's how they became rich because they had this proof that the church was all a lie and that there was a bloodline of Jesus and the, the Merovingians. It's all fucking stupid. It's three stupid chapters of lies. Um, no, four. Four stupid chapters, and they're so long. Yeah, they base. They also claim that the rise of the uh, Carolingians from the assassination of Dagobert was because of the Vatican, and not because the Carolingians just wanted to be king. That's ridiculous. Um, and I'm tapped out here. <laughs> yeah, and so Sophie starts to put all this together that there's apparently secrets about her family and there's a royal bloodline of Jesus and her grandpa always called her princess Sophie. And she like starts to put together like, what if, what if this is me? Mm-hmm. And the woman had red hair in the picture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, okay. The Priory of Sion has three things that they do. They uh, protect the documents. They protect the tomb of Mary Magdalene and they protect the actual descendant of Jesus. Those, it says, yes, here. yes. Those are the three things that they do. That's what they're about. And then Remy calls, uh, teabing out to tell him that Sophie and Langdon are wanted criminals. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't say that yet, but no, but like that's what, that's why he's going to talk to him. And that's the end. (sighs) So goodness. Wow. What a slog. How Dan Brown was it? How, how, uh, fun Dan Brown was it? I give it like a D minus. And then how like absurdly overwrought Dan Brown was it? I give it an A. <laughs> this is another A plus for me. This this section is another one that I think of at the same time as I think of, of the, fun the museum floor stuff. Yeah. I also think of all the Last Supper stuff. Like the two things that stuck with me from this book are sprawled out on the museum floor and the Last Supper chapters, which when I was in sixth grade, I thought were very smart and I now think are very, very stupid. Yeah, I also thought were very smart, but... I mean, like many people who have read this book, I just kind of assumed that Dan Brown wouldn't lie to me. Yeah, that's the real fatal assumption. People have read... Many, many, many people. Oh my God. Best-selling novel of all time. Many, many people have read this book and believe what it says. And that's very upsetting. That's actually like on a base level, like very essentially frightening. I know we don't have like time for this, but can I explain the extremely embarrassing first time I realized the book was lying to me? Sure. So when we were little, uh, my brother had this book. I don't know where he got it, but it was called The Flight of the Reindeer. Okay. And it was a book all about how reindeer actually can fly. Um, And they had all these Photoshop pictures of reindeer flying. And I don't know what Photoshop was. And also in the book, there's a quote from Al Roker talking about the earliest version of that thing where, like, you can track Santa's location with no rad satellites. Uh Uh-huh. And I was like, well, I mean, they're quoting Al Roker. They wouldn't be allowed to do that if they were just making it up. <laughs> so cute. And this is this is truly like sixth grade. Like I'm well <laughs> past the point where I should like be accepting this as fact. And I was like at dinner with my friend Chris and his parents. And I mentioned this thing. Like, actually, I could, maybe reindeer can fly. I was like, what? And I was like, I, I don't know. Like, why would they be allowed to quote Al Roker? And they're like pictures. And they're like, holy shit. <laughs> Um, anyways, great on, great on enjoyability for this section. (laughs) Oh, for enjoyability? Yeah. Uh, D. 
Yeah, same. It, it, <laughs> there were a lot of things to make me mad, and also it was boring. Yeah, but like, all, but all like three was... of the chapters, like one page, so that was nice. Mm-hmm. That's right, but uh, I mean that's not better. You know, yeah. I was just mad and bored the whole time. So. Uh, do you have a demon for this section? Um, my demon's gonna have to be, huh? Do you have a demon? Lee Teabing. Yeah, disgusting. <laughs> hashtag me too. Hashtag times up. Lee Teabing. I mean, he's probably dead by now. One hopes. Yeah. God, why was I subjected to all of that? Hobbins Eyeing Demon. Milady. Hey, do you think <laughs> do you think Dan Brown calls his wife Milady unironically? Oh God, I, I bet, bet he, he does. does. <laughs> and he says inconceivable like it's cute. Uh, does he have kids? I don't think so. Does does JK Rowling have kids? I think she does. I'm not sure on that though. He has a son named David. What? David Brown. Really great Man, name choice. I was going to say, that's a family that's into exciting names. <laughs> uh, do you have an angel? Do you have a demon? Oh, I said I agree with you, oh, Lee okay. TV. <laughs> uh, my angel is Remy, his manservant, because at the very end here, um, I'll be right there, Remy. Can I bring you anything when I come? Only freedom from oppression, sir. <laughs> <laughs> He's an anti-capitalist. Um, yeah, I like it. So Remy is my hero. <laughs> Um, I think my hero is going to be, uh, what was the name of the Maasai tribe? V something? Vartel? Oh, v- uh, Var- Varney. Varney. Oh, a- Ava Duvarney. Varney. Yeah. Varney. Uh, cause his, uh, exchange with Cole gave me the best and most enjoyable thing in that this whole fun. section. Yeah. That was good. How about you? I told you it's it's oh it's yeah Remy. it's it's Remy the anti capitalist. Yeah. Sorry, I have not slept much in like a week. That's okay. Do you think Remy, um, when he makes food, has a rat helping him? <laughs> isn't there, isn't Remy the name of the rat in no, that the movie? The rat's name is Ratatouille. <laughs> you know that's not true. <laughs> How uh, dare you? So yeah, follow us on social media. Yeah, you can follow me at Lena Jamili. You can follow me at Wishbone Ulysses. I have to spell mine. Hold uh, on, I have a foreign Lina name. Lena has to spell hers because her name is... L-I-N-A-J-E-M-I-L-I. And you can follow the podcast at Dan Brown Code Pod. Although I don't tweet much anymore, but that's... And before my interruption was rudely interrupted, <laughs> um, you can follow me at Wishbone Ulysses. It's spelled Wishbone and then Ulysses. <laughs> Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Please rate and review us on whatever uh, app you use to listen to us. It does help us out a lot, and it helps more people find this podcast. And who would want to listen to this? Hey, it's a, I'm having a good time. I, 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 it surprised me that people enjoy it, but I enjoy it. Also, I want to shout out Derek. Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast, Derek. Go Appreciate work, Derek. it. <laughs> All right. Uh, bye. Have a good one. <laughs>